You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. We're going to read through verse 14, but we're not going to get close to verse 14 this morning. Probably just verses 1 through 4, actually 2b through 4. Is all the bigger of a bite that we're going to try to take. But for the sake of context, let's read through verse 14. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word. Father, we look to you that, Father, you'd be pleased to teach us and to lead us and guide us this morning in what is arguably some of the most difficult material in Scripture. So, Father, we do ask for your help. I ask for your help. Help me to speak clearly this morning, Father, and accurately, we pray. Help us to be good hearers of what we hear, uh, that these things would benefit us, Father, uh, for all eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. In preparation for preaching, I, when time permits, like to sometimes listen to some sermons by folks that I admire and respect to see how they have handled uh, passages of Scripture. I always resort to uh, commentaries uh, to be sure that uh, what I'm coming up with, uh, others have come up with the same. And uh, I don't always get time to listen to sermons. I I wish I had time to listen to more. I don't always get time to do that. But as we approach Romans 6, I made sure I found time to listen to some sermons. This is very difficult material that we come to. And perhaps as you were reading it, perhaps uh, you don't need to raise your hand or anything, but perhaps you found your mind (coughs) wandering a little bit uh, after the third or fourth verse. Uh, Your mind sometimes, it's... this is so dense and in some respects it's so abstract that your mind will sometimes float off. Does anybody have that problem sometimes? Uh, Your mind will float off. Well, as I was listening, I listened to several sermons on Romans 6 and 
And uh, as I listen to the sermons on Romans 6, and these are sermons by esteemed uh, theologians and pastors, I found my mind wandering off as I was listening to them speak. And uh, in some of the situations I was reading sermons in, in uh, places that there were a lot of distractions. So it, it probably has a lot to do with me. But I found myself saying to myself after I'd read the sermon or I'd heard the sermon, I found myself asking this question, what was that all about? I don't remember a single thing of what I heard. And when we come to texts like this, I think there's a danger that we can reach, especially for guys like me who are used to reading and abstract things and studying this thing, these, these kinds of things. I don't want to take up 35 or 40 minutes of your time this morning and have you go out that door and ask yourself, what was that all about? Uh, I think we need to give some pegs here. Uh, you know, uh, the kind of pegs I'm talking about is the kind of pegs that you might have in a closet somewhere where you hang up your coat, you know. It's the place where you put something so you'll know where it is. Uh, I think if we go forward just a little bit to verse 11, verse 11 in many ways is kind of a hinge, a key verse in all of this. And I think this will provide for us a couple of pegs to hang some of the things I want to share with you this morning on so that when you go through that doorway, uh, you at least have your pegs and you have somewhere to store some of this uh, information. If you look at verse 11, you'll see that the Apostle Paul writes, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There are three pegs here that I want to give you. Envision a closet in your mind. There are three pegs in the closet. The first peg would be the word consider. Uh, the word consider. Uh, some of your translations may have the word reckon. Does anybody have the word reckon? Are there any King James translations open this morning? Uh, reckon. I really like that word for the translation of, of the verb. The verb's like gives them I. And it's reckon here is a very good word for that. How many are familiar with the word reckon, period? You don't hear it much anymore, do you? You don't hear it at all, but it's a great word. And I anticipated that some of us might not be that um, familiar with it. But if you grew up on Westerns like I did, uh, you heard the word reckon a lot. Uh, and I, I can remember uh, as being a small child, I remember some of my fondest memories are watching Gunsmoke with my father and with my grandfather. And it was... Uh, uh, Grandma would have these uh, circles, and uh, my pap would hightail it out of there. There were women's circles. He called them head meetings. He couldn't wait to get out of there. And he would come up to the house, and we would watch Gunsmoke. And I, I have an excerpt here uh, from one, uh, one episode of Gunsmoke where Festus, and you don't need to be familiar with Gunsmoke to get this. I made sure of that. Where Festus... <laughs> Festus, he thinks he's been bit by a rabid dog, okay? And he thinks he has hydrophobia, which hydrophobia is a... Alex will tell you all about hydrophobia after the service. He's an expert on hydrophobia. He's already shaking his head. Yeah, yeah. Hydrophobia is a symptom of a human being with rabies, right? 
And so Festus, he, he thinks he's been bit by this rabid dog and he thinks he's got hydrophobia. And he says to Doc Henry, he says, how much time do I have left? And Doc Henry says, well, 10 days, two weeks at the outside. And Festus says, uh, that hydrophobia, it's a pretty sorry way to die, ain't it, Doc? You know, a, a fella gets shot, why, he'll just fall flat on his face. Oh, he might kick a couple of times. That's what makes the crowds turn out. But what I mean is he won't just go snatching off his clothes and sashaying around trying to bite folks. Festus continues, when it comes to dying, I reckon, I reckon everybody feels about the same way. Doc Henry says, well, what that, what would that be? Festus replies, they'd just rather do it tomorrow. So here we have this comical scene where the word reckon is used very, very graphically. He says, when it comes to dying, I reckon, I reckon everybody feels the same way. They'd just rather do it tomorrow. Well, what is that? What, what, what role is that word playing in that sentence? Well, Festus has thought this through. Festus has considered this. He has reflected on, on dying. And he's very much reflecting on the fact that he might have hydrophobia. So he, he's reflecting. He's thinking. He's calculating. And he's come to a conclusion. And that's what the Apostle Paul is calling us to do in verse 11. He says, you also must reckon yourself. You must consider yourself. And you'll notice the word must there. If you, if you have an ESV opened up, uh, the word must, what the translators are trying to do is inform us that Paul is giving a command here. It's an imperative here. Uh, he's not saying that this is optional. He's saying, listen, you've got to do this. You've got to do this. You've got to think this through. You've got to reflect on this. Well, we've got to reflect on what? Okay, the first peg okay when you open up the closet the first peg is this requires thinking we need to think about this we need to think about what here's the second peg for your closet that and look at verse 11 you must think and reckon yourselves one dead to sin to alive to god in christ jesus now, of course, Paul is speaking to true believers here. He's not speaking to the world. If we're apart from Christ, this doesn't apply. But if we're in Christ, Paul is writing to believers. If you're in Christ, you need to ponder these things. You need to reflect on these things. You need to consider these things. Uh, that's the first peg. The second peg, okay, that you have died, that we have died uh, to sin. You are dead to sin. And the third, you are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, we're not going to get to all that this morning. What we're going to do this morning is just focus on what we would call the second pig, the peg, the idea that we're dead to sin. OK, hopefully that'll help us when we go out the door this morning. We'll not go out the door saying, OK, what was all that about? Um, so let's take a look uh, for the sake of trying to follow Paul's argument. Let's back up a little bit. We don't need to go too far. Let's go back to chapter five, verse 20. There, the uh, Apostle Paul says that the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Uh, hopefully by now, those of you who have listened to these sermons are saying, yeah, I got that. I remember that. Uh, that's the whole idea of the law come. The law uh, reveals our sinfulness to us. Uh, it actually makes us uh, really more culpable, more guilty. But where sin increased, God's 
grace increased all the more. Uh, and perhaps hopefully you're thinking along those lines. And Paul has shared the gospel many, many times. And he understands that there are certain objections to the gospel. And he anticipates those objections. And he, and he uh, anticipates those in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, Paul's anticipating some distortions here. He's anticipating a number of them, but two are, are very key here. He's anticipating someone saying, listen, Paul, if you preach that, no one's going to care about the law. If you preach that where sin increased, grace just continues to abound. People are going to run around saying, hey, out with the law, let's go on sinning so that we can, we can continue to receive God's uh, forgiveness over and over again. And there's truth to that. People will distort that that way. And uh, people will indeed uh, do just that. There's another uh, uh, objection. Yeah, I mean, the, the other objection is people actually will come to that conclusion. Let's go on sinning. And you recall that I brought a word into the play over the last couple of weeks, the word antinomianism. Anti meaning against, namas meaning the law, against the law. And uh, there's, I mean, there's a level of antinomianism in all of our hearts if you look at all the laws that are in Scripture and you, you know, if you're in accord with all of them, if you give your stamp of approval to all of them, but one, you know, if you're if you're if you're on about nine hundred ninety nine of them, but the thousandth one, you're saying, no, nah, I'm not I'm not following that. Well, then to that measure, we're antinomian. So there's certainly an antinomian in all of us. But what's Paul trying to put down here? He's trying to put down this notion. Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Paul, how's he answered? Anyone? What's he say? Verse 2. By no means. Uh, if you have a King James translation open, it says, God forbid. We could say perish the thought if we wanted to uh, paraphrase it. Get the thought right out of your head. And that's where we ended last time, isn't it? Right there in, in uh, chapter 6, verse, we'll call it 2a. Uh, we pick up in what we'll call verse 2b because what Paul's going to do in Romans 6 now is he's going to begin to elaborate on that. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Okay. What in the world does that mean? What are we to make out of that? A lot of ink has been spilled on this. What, are we, what does it mean to, to die to sin? What, what, can, what can we make out of that? Well, when we're studying, what's our first rule of interpretation? Anybody? What is our first rule that we make all kind of noise about? It's the context, isn't it? Well, what's the context? Well, I'll give you some, I'll give you some ideas here. Look at verse 6. Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified. A crucifixion accomplishes what? It accomplishes death, doesn't it? Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we, listen, I'm talking like Festus here, um, so that sin might be brought to nothing, not nothing, it might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be what? Enslaved to sin. Uh, hang on to that word enslaved. Look at verse 7. For one who has died has what? Been set free. Uh, look at verse 9. 
We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has what? Dominion. If we continue on, uh, look at verse 12. Let not sin what? Let not sin therefore what? Reign. See the pattern here? Um, Verse 13. uh, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God uh, as those who have been... uh, brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Verse 14, for sin will have no what? Dominion. Sin will have no dominion. If we look at verses 17 and onward, thanks be to God that you were once what? Slaves. Slaves of sin. And have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed and having been what? Set free from sin have become what? Slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members to as what? Slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were what? Slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed. The end of those things is death. But now that you have been what? Set free. Set free. Here we see this constant language of enslavement, of dominion, of reign. And even if we back up to chapter 5 and verse 21, we see the same. The Apostle Paul says that a sin what? Reigned in death. Grace also might reign through righteousness. Here we have two kingdoms. This idea of reigning, this is kingdom language, isn't it? Kings reign. And you'll recall that weeks ago, I had mentioned that based on Adam's fall, based on Adam's transgression, sin entered into the world. And what followed sin? Anyone? Death. And it spread to all, didn't it? And... uh, Just a common example of this, I think of this every time I drive up and down the road. You cannot drive up and down the road without seeing some poor creature laying alongside of it, can you? That reminds me that things are wrong here. Could you imagine having resided in heaven for five minutes and then coming back and getting into a car and seeing this death along the road like this? Could you imagine the sight of it? It would be hideous. But... We can drive up and down the road and think nothing of it because in our fallenness, we we reside in this fallen realm of death. It's a place where sin and death reign. We're born into this world in union with Adam. And we're going to be talking about that here in a few minutes. Just jump ahead for a minute. Uh, In union with Adam, we're born into this world where sin and death reign. And we see it, don't we? We see it everywhere we turn. Get a newspaper out. Read the obituaries. Everywhere you turn, you're reminded something is radically wrong here. Now, uh, this whole idea of sin reigning and death reigning, if you will, the Apostle Paul in verse 2, what does he mean by this idea of how can we who died to sin still live in it? What is Paul talking about? What does he mean by this? Well, Paul is pointing to something that has happened to all believers. 
This isn't something that we're supposed to go out and do. If we think this is something that we're going to go out and do, we're misunderstanding this. This isn't something that we can go out and do. Uh, This is something that has been done by God to everyone who is trusting in Christ Jesus. What has God done? He has caused us to die to sin. What does that mean? It means that he has extracted us out of the realm of sin and death. We've been brought out of that realm. We no longer dwell in that realm. We've been brought into another realm. Look at chapter 5, verse 21. As sin reigned in death, there's the old realm. Grace also might what? Reign. There's the new realm. We've been extracted out of this old realm where death is reigning. And we've been brought in, if you're in Christ Jesus, into this new realm where grace reigns. Where grace reigns. It's a new kingdom. And what Paul's saying is, we died to that old realm. And if we died to that old realm, how can you continue living like you're still in that old realm? Does that make sense? This is the best way I know to explain this. It's difficult stuff. Now, look at verse 3. Paul elaborates even further. Notice he says, do you not know? Well, I think a lot of times when Paul says, do you not know? We have to say, well, you know, Paul, no, not really. We don't. And he's saying it like, come on, fellas. Come on, ladies. You guys see, are you clueless here? Do you not know? And have you noticed that that word comes up a lot? Maybe you have it. It comes up all the time by the Apostle Paul. Let me take you on a little journey here. I I usually don't like to make you flip around like this, but uh, we're going to flip around a little bit because I want you to see this. Look at verse 16. Romans 6, verse 16. What's it say? Do you not know? Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Or... Do you not what? No. Keep your place. Keep your hand in Romans 6. And just turn right. Downstream to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 16. Chapter 3 verse 16. Which we read earlier. I almost stopped right there and pointed it out to you when we were reading it. I thought, no, don't get too far ahead of yourself. You're not going to know what I'm talking about. What's it say? 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 16. What's it say? Anyone? Do you not know? Look at chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, what's it say? Do you not know? Verse 3, what's it say? Do you not know? And we can continue going. Look at verse 9. Do you not know? Uh, We we can continue on. I have uh, uh, verses 15 and 16, verse 19. Chapter 9, verse 13, chapter 9, verse 24, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, and that's where I stopped. Okay, by then we've got the picture. I've probably already belabored it enough as it is. Do you not know? What's Paul wanting us to do? He said, are you guys thinking about this? Are you putting this together? Have you reckoned? You see, it comes back to verse 11. You see, it's the first peg in our closet, Right? When we open up our closet, we see three pegs. What's the first peg? Reckon. 
Do you not know? Okay, back to chapter six, verse three. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, what does that mean? You see, Romans six is not uh, real easy, is it? The first thing that we need to conclude from this is that Paul is indeed talking about water baptism, uh, the sacrament that we call baptism. That's the first thing that we need to uh, say. Uh, the second thing, and this creates a, uh, this can create a lot of problems for us. Uh, what's Paul saying about baptism? He's saying that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Verse four. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, let me make a couple of comments on this because I know it's hard. I know it's really, really hard. But what Paul is saying here, he's pointing about being uh, dying, to, uh, dying to sin, if you will. He's also uh, pointing to being alive with Christ. You see, those are the pegs that are in our closet, right? When you open up the closet, verse 11, what pegs do you have there? You have this idea of reckoning. That's the first peg. Second peg, we've died to sin. Third peg, we're alive to God in Christ Jesus, okay? We see, we have all of these here. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There's the death, if you will, to sin, all right? There's the first peg, uh, or the second, that'd be rather the second peg. The third peg, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The third peg, we are alive to God in Christ, okay? Some of you are looking at me. I was expecting that. I'm doing the best I can here to try to explain this. Now, what is going on here? Paul is saying that by virtue of baptism, okay, we have been brought into union with Christ. What does that mean? Well, when we've been born into this world, we're born into this world in union with Adam, right? Now, what do we make of that? Well, what we make of that, at least at the beginning, what we make of that is Adam is our representative in the garden, right? When Adam falls in the garden, what happens to the rest of us? We fall, right? Okay. What Paul is saying here is by baptism, We're being brought out of union with Adam and we're being brought into union with Christ. Now, some of you are already feeling some tension here. You're saying, wait a second. Okay, so by simply being baptized, we're being brought out of union with Adam and we're being brought into union with Christ. If that's the case, what are we sitting here for? Let's get out and baptize everyone we can find. And get everybody out of Adam and get everybody into Christ. But we know it doesn't work that way, does it? It doesn't work that way because all of us probably know someone who's been baptized and just continued on in the world, didn't they? So what are we to make of this? Well, here's what we make of this. It's real simple. When Paul uses the word baptism, he's pointing to the sign. And when he points to the sign, he's referring to everything the sign signifies. In other words, when Paul points, when Paul uses baptism here, he's referring to the whole conversion experience of the believer. 
He's referring to the whole conversion experience, all of that. The, you know, all the fancy words you want to use, regeneration, conversion, all of that stuff. He's referring to the fact that the, let's just use a common, a common terminology here. He's referring to the born again uh, experience that the true believer has, that they've been born again. And he speaks of it as baptism. And knowing this helps us from falling into some dreadful errors. You know, when, the, when Peter says in his writings that baptism now saves us, what is he doing? He's doing the same thing. Is he saying that baptism, literally that uh, uh, immersing somebody in some water or sprinkling somebody with some water or pouring water on someone's head is going to save them all by itself? If that were the case, let's, get a, let's go get the fire department's tanker truck and let's get around and let's get around from house to house. You know, Alex, bust the door down and uh, uh, pull the guys out with the hose and just hose the whole place down. They'll thank us when it's over. Uh, that's nonsense, isn't it? Baptism now saves us. Peter's using dynamic language here. When he refers to baptism, he's referring to the whole born-again thing experience. It doesn't happen to everyone who's been baptized, does it? Baptism actually is a sign of what has already taken place in this respect, Correct? Is everybody okay with that? So what Paul is saying here is that uh, by virtue of being born again, if you will, we have been brought out of union with Adam and in union with Christ. We have died to the old way, if you will. So how can we continue to live like that? We've died to it. And we've been brought into this new way. Does that make sense? Now, a warning. Um, Paul is not saying that we are no longer affected by sin. John Wesley very famously said, sin remains, though it does not reign. Sin remains, though it does not reign. We're brought out of the reign of sin and death. We're brought out of being in union with Adam. We're now brought into union with Christ. Who's your representative if you're in Christ Jesus? Who is he? He is Christ. And what has happened to you? You've been extracted from Adam. You've been extracted from the old kingdom of darkness. You've been brought into the kingdom of light. And now you have a whole new, a whole new reign going on here. The reign of grace. Now, some have read these verses. It's been a long time since I bumped into any folks like this. But there are some who read these verses and say, listen, you died to sin. Therefore, sin no more. And you have these, this doctrine of perfectionism. How many are familiar with that? I remember years ago being at the counter of our music store and there was a, a guy who would come in to do some, uh, some talks and give some meetings. They were having these meetings. This guy was from Michigan and he came in and he stood at the counter and I think I've shared this story with some of you. He stood at the counter and told me that he hadn't sinned in 13 years. That's impressive. Um, he hadn't sinned in 13 years. This guy's serious. I, you know, I mean, good thing I wasn't drinking a Coke or something at the time. And, um, that Coke might end up all over the counter. Uh, I, I couldn't believe my ears. I'd never really been exposed to that quite yet. And I'm waiting for him to start giggling or something. I wasn't sure what that, how that was going to be funny or anything. But no, he was serious. He hadn't sinned in 13 years. And... Um, Listen, everyone, that requires two things. That requires a really low view of God's law 
and a really high view of our personal performance of that law to come to any kind of conclusion like that. On Wednesday night, I was um, uh, giving one application of adultery on Wednesday night. And the shorter catechism teaches us that adultery isn't something that we're supposed to stay from, away from. It's something that we're supposed to help others stay away from. Uh, Tammy and I were at Tim Horton's drive-thru yesterday afternoon, and this, this young girl come walking across the parking lot hardly dressed. And there is a classic example of what I'm talking about. What are the young boys doing as they see this young girl walking around hardly dressed? What kind of thoughts are entering into their, into their heads? And I share this with you because this is just one example how we violate the law all the time and we're not even aware of it. And to say that we have kept the law for 13 years or to say that we have kept the law for 13 minutes, that would be a long time. And I don't say this to make light of it. I don't say this. Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Uh, by no means, God forbid, I'm not making light of this. But we don't even understand all the ways that we're sinning. But praise be to God that Christ Jesus has come and he's delivered us out of the realm of sin and death. And he's brought us into the realm of what? He's brought us into the realm of grace. We don't have a chance unless we've been brought into the realm of grace. While we're on the outside of this grace, what chance do we have of standing before God and giving an account of our lives? We have no chance. And as we begin to realize that, you see, as we begin to see that and internalize that, can we continue to go on the way that we've gone on? No. But sometimes we still do, don't we? Paul is not teaching perfection here. Let's be really careful. He's not teaching perfection. Christians sin. So do pastors. Christians sin. We can fall. Listen, what happened to King Dave? A man who... The word of God describes as a man after God's heart. Look how far he fell. But if we've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness and we've been brought into the kingdom of grace, God will not leave us like that. Does he leave King David like that? He sends Nathan the prophet and accompanies the words of Nathan the prophet with the, word, with the power of the Holy Spirit convicts David of his sin, and the outcome is Psalm 51, isn't it? Where David confesses his sin and is brought back into union with Not brought back into union, but brought right again with God. Now, some of this is starting to make a little bit of sense now. So we want to be warning. We, we, uh, we uh, go back to verse 2 there. The Apostle Paul says, How can we who died to sin still live in it? What he means by still living in it is being a lifestyle, being a habit. Uh, the true believer can no longer long-term walk like the world. Does that make sense? That's what Paul's saying, as a lifestyle. And Paul wants us to consider these things. That's the first peg in our closet. We don't go to the closet, what's the first peg? Wreck it. Think of Festus. You know, think of old Festus. Talking to Doc Henry, you know. I reckon all people feel the same about this dying stuff. Oh, what's that? What's that? Well, they'd just rather do it tomorrow. He's calculating 
He's thinking. He's trying to put it, trying to put it together. This is what Paul wants us to do. It isn't enough to sit here this morning and listen to this. You have to go home and work on this yourself and, and, and study this. It's not enough. And let me conclude with one last thought. This is not the power of positive thinking here. Paul's not saying, listen, if you think all these positive thoughts, all these things are, are going to work out for you. You know, this is not the, it's not the power of positive thinking. He's talking about something that has really happened in the life of the believer. You remember, we go back to two real historical events that took place. Adam's fall, Christ's resurrection. These are real things that have taken place that Paul wants us to consider and take stock of. Okay? All right. That's enough for this morning. All right? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, and we do call on you to give us greater understanding of these things, Father. There's such a treasure chest here, O oh Lord, of, of, of great truths that you've done, that things that things we couldn't begin to do to our hearts, but things that you've done for all believers. Everyone who is in Christ Jesus has been extracted from this realm of sin and death and brought into this kingdom of grace. Help us to think about these things and ponder these things, Father, that we may reckon ourselves dead to sin. And as we will study further, we will reckon ourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.